How does it go? Can you sing it for me? Da 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 I'm Skylar Weldon. And I'm Juliana Cantarelli-Vita. This is Massa, a podcast about Brazilian music and culture. Skylar and I are music professors and musicians. In each episode, we dive into a specific genre, song, artist, or issue in Brazilian music to try to understand how it works and what it means. What's on the agenda for today, Juliana? How about we let the band Nassau Zubi tell us? Ooh, music right away? <laughs> Love it. That's heavy. I, I mean, literally, right? He's talking about his sound weighing a ton and filling his luggage. Yes, but that's not the topic of the episode. It's the other half of, of the title. Okay, the title is Meu Maracatu Pesa Uma Tonelada. So my maracatu weighs a ton. Exactly. Our topic today is the music tradition maracatu. Ah, so is that maracatu that we just heard now? Well, no. But it has strong elements of maracatu. We'll get into those in a bit. Okay, but before we go any further, we need to tell everyone what maracatu is. You got this one? Maracatu is one of the longest standing types of parade music from the state of Pernambuco in Brazil's northeast. That's where you're from, right? Indeed. We call maracatu the coração de Pernambuco. The heartbeat of Pernambuco. Like most Brazilian music forms, maracatu emerged in Afro-Brazilian communities. So how long has it been around? Scholars trace it to the 19th century. Um, but before you ask me more questions, can I show you one more song? Sure. So this recording is a bit more recent, from 2019. This is the singer from Pernambuco, Karina Bu, with her song, A Casa Caiu. Mm -hmm. 
that's great too. So is that maracatu? No. Again, Karinabu draws on influences of maracatu. Well, before we get into how that works, we should probably go back and talk about the history of this music tradition, right? And even before we do that, I'd like to point out that there are actually two different forms of maracatu in Pernambuco. One called maracatu de baque virado and another one called maracatu de baque solto. That seems like a lot for one episode. Well, since Maracatu de Baque Virado is older, let's focus on that one. And we can discuss Maracatu de Baque Solto in the next episode? Perfect. I was Googling while you were talking, and it seems like there's actually a third kind of Maracatu. Yes, there is another tradition that uses that name, Maracatu, and it's called Maracatu Cearense. Cearense from the state of Ceará? Yes, but it's quite different from the Maracatus in Pernambuco. Okay, we'll leave that be for now. Sounds good, but don't Google while I talk. How about that? So maybe we could start with the origins and earliest history of Maracatu Jibaki Virado. Let's do it. Do we know where the name comes from? There is some disagreement about this, actually. The Brazilian music scholar Mario de Andrade... He's of the famous modernist school, in addition to being a poet novelist, literary critic. He was one of Brazil's first musicologists and folklorists. He traveled around the country gathering melodies and rhythms and wrote multiple books about Brazilian music in the first half of the 20th century. Yes, he wrote that the term maracatu was an amalgam between the words maraca, which references a type of indigenous shaker, and catu, which means beautiful in some unspecified indigenous language. You said that this is disputed, this take? Yeah, well, Mario de Andrade was from São Paulo, not Pernambuco, so when he was traveling, he supposedly came across this etymology. But the composer, César Guerra Peixe, who researched this topic afterwards, has written that because there's no maracá in maracatu, it seems unlikely that the name would derive from that instrument. So we really don't know where the name is from then? Not with any certainty, but other scholars like Silvio Romero, Renato Mendonça, and Gonçalves Fernandes argue that the name more than likely has African origins. Ah, but Mario Giandraji attributed the name to indigenous origins. He did. So you've already said that the practice is primarily African-derived, so it would make sense for the name to be as well. It would. Let's talk a bit about that. So how did these practices emerge? In the colonial era, some enslaved people occupied leadership positions and as part of this, they held titles in their own communities. These were court titles, so you had a king, a queen, princess, a prince, etc. There were ceremonies to crown the king and the queen and the like. This tradition is called Kings of Congo. And I'm sure we'll do an episode on that in the future, but it's worth mentioning that some historians question the roles of these coronated people. These leaders were selected under the supervision of the state and the Catholic Church, and some historians have pointed out that they were installed to keep order among communities of enslaved people. Right. The history of black resistance to colonization, enslavement, and subsequent disenfranchisement in Brazil suggests that there's probably more going going on there than that, even. Uh, for example, scholars have pointed out that the kings of Congo were important symbols of African identity, agency, and power, and provided connections to African systems of social organization, in addition to any possible stuff they were doing with the Catholic Church and the Portuguese crown. Exactly. These practices also change over time in reaction to changes in the Brazilian political system. How so? So, in the early 19th century, during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the Portuguese crown moved to Brazil. 
at that time, these coronation ceremonies adopted aesthetic practices from the Portuguese monarchs, the full regalia. Wow, that's so interesting. Do we have a sense of the affect associated with adopting this clothing? Some see it as a gesture mocking the Portuguese royals. Well, it seems possible. Um, so what happened after abolition in 1888? At some point, these ceremonies were no longer used to officially coronate powerful people, but were instead symbolic practices. Got it. So how does this relate to Maracatu exactly? Well, Maracatu emerges from this Reis do Congo practice, this King of Congo practice. And one of the places you see that influence is in the costumes. People still wear the full regalia of the Portuguese aristocracy of the 19th century. Really? That's so interesting. So can we hear references to that as well? We can. Let's listen to this example from Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico called Tomaraca. We'll translate the lyrics afterwards. O povo do Recife quer ver nação Porto Rico acender. O povo do Recife quer ver nação Porto Rico acender. O povo do Recife quer ver nação Porto Rico acender. O povo do Recife quer ver nação Porto Rico acender. O nosso rei que veio de África, ainda se coroa. Okay, okay, so they are saying the people of Recife want to see Nação Porto Rico rise, our king who comes from Africa, the queen was crowned. Exactly. But this isn't referencing the kings and queens of Congo directly. It's referring to the king and queen of this Maracatu nation. Is that practice that has persisted. So who are the king and queen of a given Maracatu nation? In Maracatu de Bacvirado, they are the people who are in charge of the nation. So it's not a symbolic position. No, not at all. Um, in our last few episodes, we talked about Candomblé, and we need to connect to that here to explain. So for those who didn't listen, Candomblé is an Afro-Brazilian religion and way of life that revolves around the worship of deities called Orishas. It is derived from West and Central African religions, and its ceremonies are conducted through music, which communicates with these Orishas, often causing spirit possession among practitioners during ceremonies. Maracatu nations in Recife, Maracatu nações in Recife, are always connected to a Candomblé house. The members of the royal court of the Maracatu nation all live at the Tejero. Wow. So what are their responsibilities with respect to the Maracatu nation? They're culture bearers. Um, they maintain the culture of that nation. They know and pass on its history. They're active in the community, educating children um, about the roots of that practice, about their ancestors. They also bless the drums that are used. Okay. And what about in the parades? You mentioned this is parade music. Yeah. So f for the parade, they organize the clothing, um, actually choosing the costumes and teaching the paraders how to properly construct them. And they parade last. Of the different groupings within the parade, they enter last. Aha. Uh -huh. And do they hold these positions for a determined period of time? For life. So like a traditional monarchy. Yeah, basically. One difference is that the king and queen aren't a couple. Right. Okay, so how are people installed in these positions? 
They are hereditary through a matriarchal line of succession. Aha, so the hainya or the queen is the most important. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we have this tradition of queens and kings who are part of a matriarchal lineage and responsible for the maintenance of the nation and passing on its history and culture. That all comes in one way or another from the Hei de Congo ceremony? Yeah, in one way or another. So when did all this happen? Well, it wasn't overnight. Uh, no one said, hey, let's invent a new music form today. It coalesced over time. But scholars tend to date Maracatu to the early 19th century. There are references to this term as far back as 1711, but it's more likely that the music form came later. This all happened in Recife. Yes, Recife and Olinda, which is the city right next to Recife. Think of Manhattan and Brooklyn. Got it. All right, earlier I heard you say Maracatu Nações, meaning Maracatu Nations. We should explain this. The term nação comes from candomblé. So again, for those who didn't listen, candomblé practices quite varied in Brazil. Uh, when enslaved people arrived, they were often separated from people of the same ethno-linguistic groups and categorized into nations based on the port of embarkation. In candomblé, the term nação is used to differentiate traditions that have codified and persisted over time. Maracatu nação references maracatu groups that are connected to a candomblé house. That makes sense. So baki virado, on the other hand, seems different. So maracatu de baki virado, literally speaking, it means turned beat or turned around beat, right? Yes. Specifically, the term comes from the virações, the variations, the dialogue between the drums. To turn the baki or to break means playing these variations. So that seems like a more technical distinction. It describes the genre in terms of its musical characteristics. Exactly. Sometimes the term maracatu de baque virado and maracatu nação are used interchangeably. So, for example, if a group connected to a candomblé house plays this style of music, they are both maracatu nação and maracatu de baque virado. Yes, but not all groups who play baque virado can be considered nações. Because they aren't connected to a candomblé house? They are, say, part of a different kind of community organization or a school or something? Precisely. So, before we get into these virações, let's talk about the instruments that play them. I know we've heard them all play together in the example so far, but can we break it down by instrument? Sure, let's start with the alfaya. Why that one? Because if we were learning to play this music, that's the first instrument that you would learn. Great. What's an alfaya? Alfayas are the lowest pitched drum in the ensemble. Um, they're double-headed bass drums, probably modeled after or adopted from Portuguese military bands. Okay, I can picture that. So what are they made out of? The shell is made of wood, and it was originally some kind of barrel cut down to the size of the drum. Okay, so you cut the barrel crosswise and you still have sort of a hoop that's made out of wood. That makes sense. Uh, do you know what kind of barrel this is? It's not known, but it was probably barrels that would carry olive oil from Portugal. Wait, why olive oil barrels? Well, of the different barrels that arrived, some had dry goods like flour, some had clothing and fabric, and others had olive oil. The first two were easy to reuse, but because the olive oil barrels were dirty, they were left for enslaved people. Oh, that's awful. There, there are actually similar stories about how Afro-Brazilians invented the surdo, which is the bass drum-like instrument in the samba ensemble, uh, which they used, I think, butter uh, tins to make it. Um, what, so what about the two heads of the drum? What are those made out of? 
The drum heads are made of goat skin that is stretched with rope. And how do you play it? Uh, with two wooden stick, one large, one small. The large one that we call bati is the one that you play with the dominant hand and provides more sound. The off hand holds the smaller stick that we call he bati for muted strokes and the like. So can we hear what the alfaya sounds like? Sure, here. Wow. So for a bass drum, I'll be honest, I was expecting something lower pitched. I mean, it's low, but it has a certain intensity. It kind of cuts through. Some groups prefer a lower pitch and some a higher pitch with the alfayas. So do all the alfayas play the same rhythm in unison? No. In fact, the alfayas are generally grouped into three different parts. Ah, that's like the three drums in the candomblé ceremony. Exactly. It is likely an inheritance of candomblé. So some of you might have heard our episode on Candomblé Nago from Hesifi. The Candomblé house that we discussed there uses three different drums called Mele, Yin, and Bianco. That Candomblé house is connected to Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico, the one that we were just listening to before. So they use the same name for the three of the alfaias in their ensemble, Mele, Bianco, and Yin. And those drums play pre-planned rhythms according to the parade and performance? Yes. So let's talk about some of the common rhythms. Is there a basic rhythm that these instruments tend to play? Yes, the bass rhythm sounds like this. <laughs> okay, so that's why it's called Baki Virado. I am totally turned around. Can we play it again with a pulse or count so that I can figure out how that rhythm works? Yes, here we go. Okay, so this is in simple duple meter. It is a march, after all. Right, that makes sense. Marches are in two counts to keep soldiers or, or people walking in step. But there's some syncopation in what you're playing as well. There is, though whether it's syncopation or not, it's a cultural question. That concept is itself culturally determined. Okay, but if we hear the count as the strong pulse, then some of the hits of the pattern come off the pulse. Is that fair to say? Yes, yeah, that's great. Though those hits are preceded by quieter hits on the pulse because I'm playing with two hands, but the louder hits that I play with are with the dominant hand that create a syncopation, starting and ending on the pulse and playing off the pulse in between. Okay, this is great. So all of the alfayas play this rhythm. Well, sometimes. The melee always plays this, but the bianco and the yang play virações or variations in between. Right. So that's actually where the name comes from. Uh, can you show me an example of a typical viração? Sure. Here's what one viração sounds like.
Okay, so that example has three different parts happening. In the center channel is the bass rhythm we discussed, the basic rhythm that's played by the melee. Uh, what would it sound like without that, just the viração alone? Like this. Okay, that's still a lot. Can you explain what's going on here? Sure. So as part of the performance, at a determined time, the bianco initiates the viração, and then the yan responds. Oh, okay, so it's like a conversation between the two drums. Yes, that's exactly how it's conceptualized. That also fits with the legacy and heritage of candomblé, which we learned is organized around these drums' speech. Precisely. All right, but just to, for clarification's sake, can you play the bianco part alone? Sure. Okay, now let's add the yin. So it seems like the important part for us here is to note that these drums play an interlocking conversational rhythm called a virasson. Uh, they not only give the music its name, the virasons not only give the music its name, but also create a propulsion for the paraders, right? Yeah, the expressions that you hear commonly about the virações is elas puxam o baque para frente. So that means they pull the groove forward? Yes, it's important to keep the parade group energized and moving forward and sticking to the bass rhythm for too long, you know, the, the ensemble can drag. Um, these variations are what prevents that from happening. Oh, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, so can we listen to one example of this viração in context? Yeah, of course. So here's... Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico playing the song Baque das Ondas, The Rhythm of the Waves. Salve Xangô nas pedreiras, Oxóssi na Matoxo na Cachoeira, Odomi Oê Manjá. Salve Xangô nas pedreiras, Oxóssi na Matoxo na Cachoeira, Odomi Oê Manjá. Wow, that highlights something that we should talk about. What's that? the rest of the ensemble. Oh, yeah, right. So you said that people begin by learning to play the alfaya. What do they learn next? Well, there are many paths from there. One option would be to play the snare drums, which are called taro and kasha. Great. So snare drums, I'm, again, imagining a military band. Yes, it's likely that these were also adopted from military parade groups. But there are two different snare drums in this ensemble. Yes, the taro is a very shallow snare drum. It's shallower than a typical snare, but more or less the same diameter, 14 inches or so. And the kaisha? A deeper version of the same. So more or less a typical snare drum. Yep. Okay, are these two instruments hierarchized in terms of rhythmic complexity, like the alfayas? Yeah, uh, the taro is... The first one that you would learn, like the melee, it plays a continual, unchanging rhythm. That rhythm sounds like this. So 
So I'm hearing a continual stream of 16th notes with a series of accents. Can we play it slower so that we can hear more clearly where those accents fall? Sure. All right, it seems like some of those accents line up with the bass alfaya rhythm, right? Right. Here, listen to the melee and that all together. Okay, so does the caixa sometimes play along with this rhythm like the other alfayas sometimes play along with the melee? Yes, but it also plays some drum rolls and more ornate versions of this pattern, though it does play the same accents, roughly. All right, but unlike the taro, the caixa has other roles in addition to the bass pattern, right? It plays other things too. Yes, just before the viração, for example, the caixa plays a stop or a parada. All right, I know this is planned and rehearsed, but does this have the effect of reminding the ensemble that the viração is about to happen? Not only the rest of the ensemble, who frankly shouldn't need a reminder, but the audience. It sort of wakes them up and says something's about to happen. Oh, okay. Well, let's hear that. So it's like dot, 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 dee, dot, dot, dee, dot, dot. <laughs> Do I get the gig? Yes. But if you were to be in the ensemble, you, you would have to know... Four or five different paradas, depending on which kind of, of song. Okay, I'll apply again later <laughs> then. Does the caixa play other roles other than signaling the parada? They also play a chamada or call to start the ensemble playing a particular song. So where does that happen exactly? So first, the mestri starts singing. After a specific portion of the song is sung, the mestri then signals the ensemble. The caixa will play the chamada and then the rest of the ensemble starts. Here's what it sounds like in Baque das Ondas. O feitiço da bruxa de pano, boneca de cera, vamos respeitar. Porto Rico que veio de Luanda, segura o baque das ondas do mar. O feitiço da bruxa de pano. Cool, I can hear that. So let's round out the ensemble. First, there's a single-headed iron bell called Gongue. Listeners will recognize that sound because it is very similar to what we heard in Candomblé, where pretty much all of the traditions rely on a bell to serve as the timeline for the music. Is that what's happening here? Yes, the gongue is similar to the gun that we heard in the Candomblé, and most scholars agree that they are connected, part of the African heritage of the music. So how is it different then? Well, it's massive. The bell itself is between 18 and 24 inches, and it has a, a long handle that's another foot or two long. The handle has a small cross piece that sits in the hip crease and supports the bell as a parade. You hold it with one hand and strike it with a wooden stick that you hold in the other hand. Wow, it seems like it would have been easier to use a smaller instrument. Maybe, but the larger the instrument, the more sound you get. Right, this is an outdoor parade, so you need a big instrument. It's more than that. There are like a hundred drummers that need to hear maybe two gongues. Wow. They are positioned in the middle of the parade group so that everyone can hear. Oh, that makes sense. Well, what's a typical gongue rhythm then? The most common rhythm is...
Hold up. This is the timeline? It's not even playing the pulse. Well, yes. We know from our discussion of bell parts in Candomblé that the bell doesn't always play the pulse. So the musicians know how to organize themselves around this complex part? Can you count it for us? Yeah, sure. Here, here it is. All right, can we hear that with the alfaya and the taro? Here it is. Bell is in the center, alfaya is in the right channel, and the taro is in the left. Okay, so other instruments. Wait. What is it? Well, there's something else to say about the bell. In the Candomblé episodes, we talked about a few different bells. The gong, which is wrought iron, and the agogo, which is usually mass-produced. As it turns out, some of the Maracatudbac Virado groups have adopted the agogo instead of the gongue. Whoa, how come? Well, there are a few reasons. One, the agogo is a popular instrument in Brazil that exists in a number of musical styles, like samba and the Bayan carnaval music called afoxé, and by Switching to agogo, you open the possibility of more participants. Ah, so the agogo is smaller and quieter, so more people can play at the same time. But that's not traditional. No, this is something that you hear in Maracatu de Baquivirado groups that are not Maracatu Nações. Community groups and schools and the like. Yes, yes. And here's what a typical agogo rhythm would sound like. Oh, wow, that's nothing like the gongue part. Yeah, it's pretty different. Okay, so so what else? Is there any other instruments? The next instrument that we should highlight is the abbe. Oh, I remember this from our last candomblé episode. It's kind of a rattle made from a dried gourd with beads strung on the outside. Exactly. Here's what the abbe players play. So how many abbe players would be in a given group? Between 8 and 25 or so. It depends on, on the size of the group. All right. So a typical parade group might have two gongues, 20 abbes, five caixas, eight tarois, and 60 or 80 alfayas. Yep. Sounds loud. It's pretty loud, yes. focusing here mostly on examples from the group Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico. Right, that's the group that I play with. 
but there are pretty big differences between different nasoins, right? Yes, each nasoin has its own drumming accent. For example, as we mentioned, Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico turns the beat with questions and answers between instruments. Not all groups do that? Another group called Maracatu Encanto da Alegria turns each drum individually. So this is just a matter of aesthetics? That's not how it's understood, no. One of the most prominent researchers of Maracatu, Climério de Oliveira Santos, writes that, quote, Each nação considers its beats a sacred rite, an aesthetic patrimony that, owing to its symbolic dimension, is included in the ethos of each community, unquote. Ah, this is really reminding me of our discussion of Candomblé. The one comes from the other. Right. We talked about maracatu being candomblé in the street in the last episode. Exactly. So now that we have a sense of the accompaniment, what would you like us to know about the songs? Well, they're called toadas or loas. Do those words have special meaning other than song? Not that I know of, but these are the terms that are used. Other terms for song. Like música or canção. Are not used. So who sings? The mestre leads the song. He starts it and introduces the sections. In between, a group of women respond, either repeating what he has sung or with a different predetermined part. The drummers sing too, if they're able. What do they sing about, generally speaking? They sing about Candomblé, the kings of Congo, their own community, and Nassau and its history. There are references to the neighborhood, um, to the symbols of the Nassau, of how great it is. There are also songs about the abolition of slavery and the continued inequalities experienced by Afro-Brazilians. Okay, let's hear one. And this time, maybe we can pay attention to the call and response that you mentioned. You'll hear the mastery first, accompanied by the gongue. The chorus responds. And then after a couple of rounds, the kashas start, followed by the alfayas and the other instruments. Then, once the ensemble has started, you'll hear a different call and response. Eu vi a terra tremer Porto Rico quem passou por aqui Porto Rico quem passou por aqui Porto Rico faz terra What is this song about? This song is about the nação. He says, I saw the earth tremble. Porto Rico is who passed by here. Ah, okay. So it's about the power of the music. Literally, it's volume in part. Yeah. O canto da sereia é o canto tão bonito. O canto da sereia é o canto tão bonito. Oi, faz estremecer o barco de Porto Rico. Let's give some more context. This is parade music. When is this parade happening? This happens on the Sunday night of Carnaval. So Carnaval, or Carnival, is the festival that happens for about four days, depending on the place, before Ash Wednesday in the Catholic calendar. It's the biggest holiday in Brazil. Where is the parade? It's at Avenida Dantas Barreto, which is in the commercial center of Recife. Are there stands set up for the spectators, or is this just in the avenue like it would be on any busy Thursday? There are stands all the way down, but it's free to attend. 
oh, that's way better than in Rio or Salvador, where you almost always have to pay for the official parades. We take pride in that in Recife. There are many places that host these parades, and it's all free. That's amazing. I have to go. It's a shame you haven't gone. Shame on me. Sorry. You have to go. Uh, so tell me more about the parade. In my experience with samba parades, there are always various wings called alas. Is that the case here? It is, but the alas are smaller, way smaller than those in samba schools. Can you run down the traditional alas in the order they parade? First, Bohtishtandahti. That's the flag bearer, right? Yes, yes. With the year that NASA was founded and the symbol. Um, and then come the drummers who parade to the middle and then start right in front of the jury. Okay, to be judged in their in their performance styles and things like that yeah. and they let the rest of the group pass and then rejoin at the end right yes yes and then come the damas de paso who are the women who carry the calungas all right we should explain that a calunga is a kind of doll right yes it's a wooden doll that represents a special figure in the, the history of the nação like who for example for example in nação do maracatu porto rico one of the calungas is the woman who restarted the nação after it had a lengthy hiatus Got it. So this doll represents her. Not exactly. It is her. It's part of the candomblé practice, which revolves around the connection between the visible world of the living and the invisible world of the ancestors and the orishas. Oh, so are these women who carry the dolls candomblécistas then? Yes, they are ekedis or ekedis or female practitioners, which we discussed in episode three. And there is more than one calunga? This entirely depends on the nação and its history. Nação Porto Rico has four, the most recent of which was introduced in 2015. So these come around once in a while in response to the changes in the Nação. Yes. Uh, so who's next in the parade? After the Calungas comes the royal court. First, there is a succession of people playing the roles of ministers and empresses and all kinds of things. But at the end of this ala is when the queen and the king and the princess of the Nação come. The important leaders that we discussed earlier. Yes, exactly. And then is there anything else that comes after that? The rest of the alas will depend on the nación and what they want to communicate about themselves. Okay, got it. Um, is there a yearly theme for the parade or are the songs the same every year? There's actually a, a theme each year. Um, each nação introduces a new song, which they play along with other standards from their repertory. Usually the theme honors a candomblé orisha. For example, last year, Nação Porto Rico honored Oshasi. Ashwasi is the patron of that Nasung Teheru. Yes. So what about the costumes? What do people wear? It depends on the ala. The members of the court wear heavy, fancy dresses modeled after the Portuguese court. You mentioned that earlier. Although I just realized that we're talking about Hesifi in summer. It must be 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Yuck. Yes, it's like 40 degrees Celsius. So hot. But in Nasung Porto Rico, there's also an ala that honors the indigenous heritage of the people in the Nasung. And so those costumes recall what indigenous groups from that region wear. And that's a lot lighter than the heavy dresses. So all of this talk of the Portuguese court and the representation of indigenous people, and of course, the dominance of the legacy of Afro-Brazilian culture and the music and parade, seems to speak to the importance of history and sort of doing history through Maracatu. Is my reading accurate? Absolutely. Not only the reenactment of the coronation as part of that tradition and trying to find connections, but also the fact that Afro-Brazilian people are still struggling for liberation and equity. And in playing Maracatu, they are establishing a place and way of representing their history, which isn't in the history books. For example, one of the loas or songs is called May 13th. That's the abolition date, the day that Princesa Isabel signed the Golden Law. 
Yes, but in the song they say May 13th is really April Fool's Day because black Brazilians still aren't free. And the fact that black Brazilians don't have equal access to social infrastructure and are killed in an astonishing numbers by Brazilian police and are disproportionately affected by things like the global pandemic and it, it and all is an evidence of the fact that legal abolition of slavery did very little to create the possibility for freedom and equal participation in society. Viva 13 de maio, negro livre no Brasil Mas a verdade foi o primeiro de abril Viva 13 de maio, negro livre no Brasil So, Princesa Isabel's status as a hero to enslaved people is questioned. In fact, in this song, Mestre Chacon identifies a different heroic figure, Zumbi dos Palmares. Aha, Zumbi was the leader of the Republic of Palmares, which was a quilombo, a community of formerly enslaved people that formed in Pernambuco in the 17th century. And this song identifies his legacy as the one that speaks to real liberation because he fought for freedom against colonial oppressors. In fact, the day he was assassinated is commemorated as the day of Afro-Brazilian consciousness in Brazil, right? Indeed. It seems like there's another important element to the doing history part of Maracatu. What's that? Well, although Maracatu has existed for a long time, it's not like it has experienced an uninterrupted popularity or even a stable presence in Brazilian culture, right? Some of the groups have gone away and some have been revitalized. Uh, we mentioned that earlier with um, Nação Porto Rico. Yeah, well, the oldest Nação doesn't exist anymore, but the other Nações pay tribute and remember that Nação for their role in creating the music that persists. It's like a respect for ancestors in a way. Sometimes in workshops, if the playing gets particularly intense, you might even shed some blood. And Mestre Chacon has, a, has even said, well, our ancestors bled a lot more than that. Wow, that's heavy. I promise he said it lovingly. So a lot of the songs have lyrics about the history of the Nação, right? Yeah. Dona Inês é minha rainha de palmares a palmeirinha. The songs are supposed to educate the players and the community about Maracatu, Candomblé, the in that particular terreiro or nação. That song says, Dona Inês is my queen from Palmares to Palmeirinha. Chico Dita has arrived and Senhor Eudis and Zé da Ferida. Okay, so it's encountering all of these important people. It seems like a lot of responsibility to carry that history through a music group. But it's still so much fun. Mestre um, Chacon explains that Maracatu is like, a, it's like party music. Party music for the court. Oh, the queen and everyone. Exactly. Um, so let's give them a show, just like any royal court would deserve. Oh. 
Yalda é nossa rainha, Tata Raminho é nosso rei. Olha o respeito, a majestade Chegando onde eu cheguei Okay, so before we close the episode um, I'd like to call, talk one more time about the songs from the beginning It occurs to me that they not only don't really sound much like these examples of Maracatu but I worry about how much they respect all of this history and responsibility Well, let's talk about it. Okay, first, Meu uh, Maracatu Pesa Uma Tonelada by Nação Zumbi. Here's what it sounds like if you forgot. First, the name of the group. Nações Zumbi? Yeah. That seems to be referencing Maracatu Nações and Zumbi, who we just discussed. Right? Yeah. Right on. So is this band made up of Maracatu playing Afro-Brazilian candomblesistas? No. Hmm. Is that an issue? Well, it's complicated. People have different opinions about it. Although they weren't candomblesistas, their original leader, Chico Science, had a very positive relationship with Maracatu Mestres. And I'm assuming that through their success, they brought a lot of attention to Maracatu. They did, yeah. Good attention or bad attention? Yes, attention. They brought Maracatu into the spotlight, which meant that parents started encouraging young people to play, and people from all over Brazil and the world started to know what Maracatu was. It became a matter of pride for Pernambuco in a way that it hadn't been before, really. You remember that scholar César Guerra Pesci that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode? I remember. Well, he was responsible for bringing attention to Maracatu in academic circles in the 1950s. And Nação Zumbi had that same effect with a much larger audience starting in the 1980s. Got it. Prior to that, people would say pejoratively that Maracatu is coisa de negro, meaning stuff for black people. Yikes. People said that pejoratively? Yes, which is completely wrapped up in the lack of liberation that Mestre Chacon is singing about. The fact that Afro-Brazilian culture would be characterized negatively or as low culture is part of Brazil's structural racism. The system, the government, the police, called the courts of the kings of Congo everything that black people did. They called it maracatu. We knew that when they referred to maracatu, it was a completely pejorative word. The meaning of the word maracatu was a synonym for mess, confusion, noise. But it was nothing like that. What we did was play our drums, sing, and praise our orishas. 
Okay, but there there probably is some backlash to that too, right? For sure. One of the side effects of the maracatumania is that a number of groups not associated with candomblé tejeros begin to spring up. These groups did not and do not ground their music and practices in the traditions of candomblé. Instead, take the music on its own. Are these the balakatu <laughs> groups I've heard of? Yes. Balakatu means something like party maracatu, maracatu de balada, and they play the music just for fun. They aren't beholden to its traditions. Okay, I can see why people that have preserved this music and its meaning over decades, especially when faced with the kinds of racism we've mentioned, might bristle at the idea that suddenly this musical practice is cool for everyone, as long as you strip away the aspects that tie it to Afro-Brazilian religion. Exactly. Master Chacon has reinforced this, saying, Maracatu is religion. Maracatu without religion is just a percussion ensemble. Okay, speaking of which... How well does Nação Zumbi do with the rhythms, the percussion ensemble part? They're pretty careful. Um, they learned from different masters. Right. So you said they were respectful and respected by many maestres, right? Yes. So let's talk about how they do it. They do play a little snippet of that vira sound that we discussed before. Here, listen. I don't hear it. Okay, here, listen to them, and I'll play Viviração on top. Aha, so that is starting to make sense. Um, so can we talk about that Karina Buch song a little bit? Yes. Well, her situation is a little different. She is a condomblesista and plays with Nação Estrela Brilhante. Is the reception of her music different? It seems like she's been pretty well accepted as someone who can function in both worlds. Um, she used to be part of that of a group called Comadre Fulazinha. Aha. So when the scholar Jack Draper wrote about Comadre Florazinha and Nação Zumbi, he said that they, quote, uphold traditional regional and local music as a valuable heritage while introducing lyrical and musical innovations in the form of local hybrids, new instrumentation, and textual reflection on the status of local culture, history, and music within a transnational matrix of production. Now, this is a big topic, and we're going to do a whole episode about it, but it's worth mentioning one other factor that complicates things. Traditionally, instruments in Maracatu were played by men, and there are groups that uphold this tr tradition still. Uh, so the fact that Karina Bu is a woman might challenge some people's ideas of propriety and gender roles and stuff. For sure. Well, in most nações, women can play mul multiple instruments, of course, um, but some instruments can still be seen as highly gendered. Okay, so what about the musicality? Are there instruments here that we might recognize in her song? Yes, Karina Bu frequently plays an alfaya on stage, um, including in this song. Oh yeah, you can hear that right off the bat. 
Is that a standard pattern that she's playing there? More or less, she's coming from a viração that Nação Estrela Brilhante played. Wow, that was a great discussion. Yeah, it was. I feel like we only scratched the surface. Me too. Do you think we should do another one? Another one about Baki Virado? I'm down. Okay, I think we could talk a little bit more about these issues of gender that we just discussed. Oh, great. Actually, there's a musician we could focus on. Who's that? You'll have to listen to find out. Oh, okay. So, next time? It's a date. Well, thanks, Juliana. Thanks, Skyler. Esse foi massa. <laughs> Massa is written, produced, and edited by Skyler Weldon and me, Juliana Cantarelli Vita. Special thanks this week to Romaniki Dantas and Mestre Chacon Viana. Find more about them in the description of this episode. For episode transcripts and links, please visit our website, essefoimassa.com. That's E-S-S-E-F-O-I-M-A-S-S-A dot com. You can email us at essefoimassa at gmail. Essefoimassa is also our handle on both Instagram and Twitter. Our intro music is by Sonda Massa and our outro music is by Semi Bananas. Please join us next week for our episode on Baki Mulher. Until then, esse foi Massa. Eu já volto, tá? Go get yourself a drink. A drink while I finish this. <laughs>